Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the first Breakwater Festival. And yeah, um, some of you might know this is our second festival. Last year we had the Bridges of Meaning Festival in Landau. And now, uh, yeah, Breakwater Festival. And um, yeah, Cassidy, Dave, and I, we were thinking of a name for what we are trying to build. And Dave came up with this name, Breakwater. And we thought it was a good fit. And what, what does it mean to us? Well, um, we are all having these uh, estuary conversations, right? In these online communities, on YouTube, on Discord, on Zoom, uh, all this thinky-talky stuff. And we, of course, also have the in-person estuary meetups and uh, with all of this back and forth. And it can be quite chaotic sometimes. Uh, as you might know, and you can get lost in it, especially if you are participating mostly online. And with Breakwater, we want to create some structure to, uh, to tame these tides of, uh, of these online conversations. And um, yeah, you can think of it like a harbor maybe where you can return from time to time to reconnect and to have meaningful conversations in person. Yeah, and to recharge and to reorient. And that's basically uh, the meaning of the name Breakwater for us. And yeah, and this year we also have uh, a special topic for, for this conference, right, Cassidy? So uh, this year the theme is Path, People, and Places. I think no matter where we are today, we're all on some journey to try to figure out what is meaningful and how to live the, the best life possible. And so we have a lineup of speakers today coming together to help us spark the conversation and understand what it is to uh, navigate this journey uh, with the paths we tread, the people we meet, and the places we find along the way. So um, we're really excited. Uh, I think it's going to be fun. Um, and uh, we hope that, that what the speakers talk about, that it eventually sparks that conversation between you all in your personal lives and how to embed that in community. So we're going to get started. But before we do that, I'm going to have Dave come up, and he's going to talk about the venue and run through some ground rules. All right, good morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here. Um, I wanted to just say a little bit about where we're meeting. This night, we were outside back there in the hof or in the yard, and that all belongs to the villa. And the villa is run by my wife. That is a community center here. We've done about two, three years, and we partner with the church. And so they've been gracious to give us the space for our event that we can use the fellowship hall, the kitchen. This evening we'll be in the sanctuary for the singing. And we have the villa on the other side. So we have kind of three areas. And the villa will be open the whole time. So if anybody wants to go hang out there, sit at the table, enjoy a little bit different uh, than this room, anytime you'd like to in the breaks can go over there. During the lunch period, we'll make cappuccinos for you guys. So we have a, a real cappuccino and real baristas, so they'll make that for you guys. Probably not have long enough breaks in between. But during the lunch break, we'll serve cappuccinos over there. So you're welcome to hang out over there and uh, relax. And we'll also be there this evening, okay? So there's also drinks over there, like last night, for example, uh, beer and soft drinks or, or lemonade uh, type drinks and I have a little box there you can put in coins or there's an app where you can scan if you want to make a little payment for those and we'll also have change on hand for anybody that wants to buy them. Um, yeah, that's about it. I'm trying to try to keep out of the sanctuary uh, so that means when we go over to the villa you can go out through here. We'll leave this door open um, during lunchtime, and it's always possible to go along the street as well, around that way. And the reason we're keeping that uh, little, it would be a lot of foot traffic, it's kind of wet and muddy, and we don't want to ruin the nice red carpet, um, and we don't want to clean it up afterwards. <laughs> so, one, if you have any questions about the house, uh, any kind of issues, then you just come to me, okay? And just a note, we're guests of the villa, so try your best to leave it better than we found it. That would be uh, 
Yeah, clean as you go. <laughs> no, no. Um, all right, so we're going to get started, and uh, our first speaker does not need much of an introduction, so uh, give it up for our online pastor, Paul Vanderclay. Cassidy. Can you hear me okay? All right. I'm going to stand because I usually stand. We have been doing a number of events like this all over the world, and last May, we had an event in Chino, California. Uh, we called it the Quest for a Spiritual Home. Some of you might have seen some of the videos John Verveke and Jonathan Peugeot and I presented, and John Van Donk, who's led the Estuary Project. And after the event itself, we had a field trip, which wasn't technically part of the event, where we went to St. Andrew's. Orthodox Church, which was in Riverside, not too far away. And the, the priest there talked about the, they had more than a million dollars in stone flooring and talked about the facility and all of the, the beautiful art that was in the place. But the thing that caught my attention most was there was a, there was a, a box of relics and bones and many of the participants of the conference who had converted to orthodoxy were kneeling and kissing the box of relics. And I watched that and I thought to myself, how many of these guys seven years ago were downloading Sam Harris and taking in everything he said about religion being foolishness, about religion being evil, about religion being superstitious, and now they are on their knees in front of a box of, of bones, kissing it. And I thought, the world is changing quickly. And then last night I was here speaking with many of you, and um, a number of you who even just last year at the festival were, well, I'd listened to Jordan Peterson and John Verveke and the religion that's not a religion and Jonathan Peugeot and his symbolism, but... Uh, and then the first guy I see when I walk in here, who I had a number of conversations with last year about Macedonia and, and Orthodox nominalism, and he's wearing a cross. And I thought, And he said, yeah, after the festival... A number of us, um, you know, converted and became observant and participated. And now, in perhaps our nominal religious setting, we are critical to the function of our local church. And I thought, wow, the world has changed. The world has changed a lot. And many of us who have come to this conference are living very different lives than we lived seven years ago. And that's a big thing. And so I, I thought, you know, people, passages, places, Jordan Peterson in cyberspace opened something up. And for the last seven years, I've done a lot of thinking about what exactly Jordan did. Now, obviously, Jordan, when I spoke with Jordan, on the, my first conversation with him online, I asked him, I said, you know, you wrote Maps of Meaning in 1999, and I knew one person that read it before 2016, and he told me it was inscrutable. It, you know, it was, it, it was just too dense, and, and it's kind of a tortured book. And then, of course, 2016, he... He rises to celebrity over pronouns, and many people have said, well, came for the culture war, stayed for the religion. And that's what a lot of people did. And I thought about how Sam Harris and the New Atheists sort of cemented the idea, at least in North America, after the Cold War, with the rise of tensions with Islam, that... Religion is an evil force in the world. Religion is the only thing that can good, make good men do evil things. That was one of Sam Harris's, one of Sam Harris's lines. And 
and the idea that religion was just, it was superstition, it was arbitrary. These were, these were bad stories that were making otherwise good people do bad things. And I thought about how Jordan came on the scene and said, that doesn't really fit the data. The data says that religious thinking and religious movements are not arbitrary. And of course, for Jordan Peterson, trying to look at things through, let's say, an evolutionary psychological lens, that there are structures in human behavior that have been molded and shaped and evolved and survive over time immemorial, and these things have, have manifested themselves in religious mythology and religious structures and religious ways of being, and that there is, in fact, this is where I got into God number one and God number two, Sam Harris always complained, there is no God in the sky, and that's sort of God number two. And, God, and, and Jordan Peterson said, well, God is sort of built into how we greet each other, how we raise our children, uh, how, we, how we fight, how we make peace, how we make love, all of those things. God is sort of built into, God is arenic. And Sam Harris only understood God as agentic. And so this continued to roll through the culture. And, and there was obviously in, in the Anglophone world, there was a sense of, well, why, why, why is it him and her? And, and what is the structure between, I know with Andrea we're going to talk about masculine and feminine, and how do these structures work? And Peterson sort of suggested to people that, contrary to what Sam Harris and others were saying, the world isn't arbitrary, and that these structures endure, and that there are reasons for this, and the reasons aren't all bad. In fact, some of them are good, and some of them are even essential, and if you throw them away, you're sort of lost in chaos, and you won't know how to act. And of course, so Jordan, Jordan took his status rocket ride, and Jordan has been doing his things ever since. Uh, after I have to leave Sunday, because I have to catch a train to Frankfurt, and then I had to plane to Heathrow, and Jordan has this ARC thing in London, and I really have no idea what that is. I, but I'm very curious. I'm, I'm, very, I'm not so interested in the political. I always tell people I'm a religious believer and a political skeptic, because I, I believe in the power of religion to shape and hold. I'm a little more skeptical about politics. so. Um, so we'll see what happens with Peterson in London this next week. But of course, on the heels of Peterson was Peugeot. And I, when I started making videos, very quickly people started saying, oh, you should talk to Jonathan Peugeot. Oh, well, who's Jonathan Peugeot? Well, he's an icon carver. And I thought, I'm a Dutch Calvinist. I don't know if I can talk to an icon carver and not have my church say something. And so then I, I contacted jo Jonathan Peugeot. was very easy to get in touch with then. So was Jordan. It, that's all changed now. Uh, not that Jonathan is hard or unapproachable, but Jonathan had 4,000 YouTube subscribers. I watched a couple of his videos, and I thought, I don't know what he's talking about. And so I reached out to him, and he says, oh, yeah, I've seen some of your videos. Let's talk. And we compared notes. He had been a missionary in Africa. I'd been a missionary in Latin America. We shared some missionary stories. That's per sort of what became my Randall's conversations. Dug into his story, how his family, of course, he's, he's French-Canadian, but his parents had converted to evangelicalism. His father had been a minister, and he had gone to art school, and we've been talking a lot about architecture on this trip, just looking at it's so shocking for an American to come to Europe and see these buildings that are just beautiful. These old buildings, this old, you know, we were in Amsterdam, The Hague, just the beauty of these buildings. And next to it, this concrete and steel gray parking structure. 
and we think, is no one doing zoning? I, I mean, in America, if you have a building like that, the whole town is going to say, if you build anything nearby, it must conform to the style of the thing. And we were just learned this morning that, um, no, here actually, if you build next to it, it has to look ugly so you don't compete with the beauty. And it's like, what, what is going on here? And, and so Peugeot, you know, Jonathan, of course, went to art school and, you know, went through the whole postmodern thing, studied all the postmoderns, of course, being French-Canadian, studying it in, in French, reading all the French philosophers, coming out of that wanting to make historical icons that looked like the tradition. And, of course, he and his brother looking at, while Jordan sort of looked at evolutionary biology and mythology, Jonathan wasn't, he didn't care much about the evolutionary biology stuff. He was looking at the patterns and saying, the patterns are not arbitrary. The patterns are deep, and those patterns you can find, you can find revelation and attention to those patterns in the Bible and in the tradition of the church. And of course, Jonathan then becomes orthodox. And after I'd been making videos about Jordan Peterson and talking to Jonathan Peugeot, uh, actually a, um, a guy from South Africa starts writing me and say, there's another professor at the University of Toronto, and his name is John Verveke, and he has this course on Buddhism and cognitive science. And the sound is terrible, but, but watch it on YouTube. And so I, of course, did a little commentary on some of those videos, and John Verveke very graciously reached out and said, oh, I'd like to talk about the videos that you're making about my videos. And so that conversation began. And so here, here comes John Verveke from a totally different angle from, well, Peterson is psychology, but, but John Verveke is cognitive science, and he too is is looking at the deep structures. And he's more skeptical in terms of what he calls the legacy religions, but he's also wrestling with the fact that wherever you sort of stand on this religion or non-religion thing, if you sort of came to this through Sam Harris, Sam Harris has it wrong. These, these structures are not only built into our culture, as Jordan Peterson would say, or built into the religious artifacts, as Jonathan Peugeot would say, but these structures are built into, in fact, how we think, how we perceive, uh, how we draw attention, our, our relevance realization, how we take the combinatorial explosiveness of the world. If I were to stop just in this room at this moment and begin paying attention to almost every artifact in the room, I would not have enough time in my life to exhaust everything that is in the room, not paying any attention to the people. And at the same time, we walk into this room, we all sort of know how the chairs should go, we all know we're going to sit there and, you know, have some coffee and some conversation. We all have these behaviors and these actions, and we know them, and we do them, and none of us are sort of distracted by, oh, the lights are round and we pay attention. And all, all I saw when I came into were the lights. None of us do that. We pay attention to each other. And we take all of the complexity of this room and we break it down into what we need to know. That's relevance realization. It's also our biases. And so Peterson, Peugeot, Verveke, and when we do an event like this, whether we're over in North America or here in Europe, I almost always ask someone, how did you get here? And in many cases, it's Peterson or Peugeot or Verveke, and then that sort of started something in my life, and it put me on a path. And whereas... Sam Harris and the New Atheists at the end of the 90s, beginning of the aughts, would have said, well, your path should be rational. And Verveke comes along and says, well, what do you mean by rational? 
And, well, rational means that you, you take everything in your world and you think about the great chain of cause and effects and you place them in a good order. And so Peterson would come back and say, but how do you know what is good? And Sam Harris would say, well, it's obvious. And someone would say, is it? Can it be? And, and I think in some ways, Sam Harris, who grew up in Hollywood, can say that because if you grow up in a center of such cultural power, there's so much cultural gravity in that place, the world only looks like what you know around you. And part of what, part of what has struck me about, and has always struck me both last year and this year coming to Europe, Someone in the North American culture might look around and say, this is not a very diverse group of people. Everyone, nobody has a lot of pigmentation in their skin. But when I talk to you, I think, this is an astoundingly diverse group of people. Just last night, having a conversation about Macedonia and Hungary, and, and uh, a Venezuelan immigrant to the Netherlands and Croatia. I don't, I don't see him. Um, and, and Germany. And, and, and even, you know, if you look at one of Jonathan Peugeot and Richard Rowland's recent videos on universal history and nationalism, well, what is Germany? And just on, on the car on the way here, we were talking about Austria, the history of Austria and Germany. And, and when I was driving in here yesterday, looking at the map, looking at the Palatinate, and Heidelberg, and Worms, and all of these places that I knew in my Dutch Reformed theological education about Martin Luther and the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's, I, I, we come into this place and, wow, this has been the center of a world of change, thought, relevance, even though everybody's pretty pasty looking here, you know, and I can see why, because you don't see the sun too much. <laughs> and so... I pause seven years in, and I think about this. What has happened in the last seven years? And, and you might look around the room and say, well, there's just a few of us, but this is just a small group of a few of a far larger movement that has been happening. And it, it's difficult to gain perspective on... What exactly is happening? Is that clock correct? Is it 5 to 10? Okay. And what time should I be done? Okay. All right. Well, that's important for me to know. Because if you've watched any of my videos, I can go a long time. All right. And for me, for me personally, I pastor a small dying congregation in the sense that most of the people who come in for the worship service on Sunday morning are in their 80s. And last year, there were four or five people who died. The year before that, there were four or five people who died. In this next year, there will probably be some who maybe go to a memory care unit because they're struggling with dementia. Uh, I'll probably do another sermon or, or do another funeral or two. And so then I look at the church and say, well, what is happening to the church? But then I have this other thing that I'm doing, not just the YouTube, but estuary. And people in my church look at what happens with estuary and they see men and women 
in their 20s and 30s coming in, and we're just about at the point now where more people come to church for estuary than they come to church for the sermon and the worship service. So, so actually this coming January, I've been doing estuary in one or two evenings a month, and I don't plan it or organize it too well. I just kind of look at the calendar and, ah, okay, I'm not too busy this week. I can do one this week. That's a terrible way to run a program. And a couple of months ago, my elders and the deacons said, you know, we, we really have to ask hard questions about our future as an institution. You know, the institution that keeps the lights on and paves the parking lot and pays the bills. And I said, okay, well, why don't we move estuary to Sunday morning at 9 o'clock? And we'll do it every week. And we'll see what happens with that then. And I know I have some inklings of what may happen because I know some of my estuary participants are like, yeah, we do this once a month, but I really want to do it more. And there's, I actually have another pastor in Sacramento who's also running a once a month meeting. And so, well, what if we do it at nine o'clock on Sunday morning? Well, some, well, the, the Sunday school, the Sunday school will stop, the one, the adult Sunday school that I've been doing. So, got to land the plane on Romans uh, by the end of December. But at my Sunday school, there's four or five African-American women who have lived a lot of incredible life, grew up in the Jim Crow South, migrated to California, got married, had kids, lost husbands, had kids get in trouble. And I thought, wow, these 20 and 30-something, mostly single, almost all no profession to Christ, no religion in their background, but coming into this church because they want to have a meaningful conversation. One woman at our last estuary meeting, she and her boyfriend um, took a trip to Europe because Europe is beautiful. Went to Italy because Italy is beautiful. Went to the Vatican because the Vatican is beautiful. And she walked into the Sistine Chapel, and she began to weep. And she had no idea why. Why is this emotion welling up in me and expressing itself in weeping? I didn't grow up Catholic. My mother was a hippie. She said to me once, maybe you were a nun in a past life. Okay, I don't know. But I walked into this building, and I walked into this room, and I wept. And she was kind of embarrassed by it. And so, you know, pop up, face, leave. Don't say anything to anyone about this. But then come to the estuary group, and we go around the circle. What would you like to talk about today? And she says, I haven't told anybody this. But I went to the Sistine Chapel, and I walked in, and I started to weep. And of course, then when we went around the circle again, everyone said, I want to talk about that. <laughs> what is that? When we were driving up yesterday with, with Ferdy and Cassidy and Andrea and Nellie-Anne, um, we... I was thinking about the last seven years. I was thinking about all of the conversations and all of the thinking and all of the talking. Constantine Kissin recently did a video with, with Chris Williamson. And, and at least two different videos, Constantine Kissin, of course, grew up in the Soviet Union, emigrated to England as a teenager, like that as a 12-year-old, became a comedian, and now is sort of a, a political pundit. And in many recent videos, he did a video with Jordan Peterson when they got into religion. In many recent videos, he keeps saying things like, well, I'm not religious yet. 
And I, I mentioned to them in the car that that's not a small thing to say. I mean, can you imagine if we were driving up in the car from the Netherlands to here, and I was talking to them, and I said, well, I'm not a woman yet. <laughs> oh, say more. Tell me what you mean. I'm not religious yet. And Constantine Kissin is part of this whole group of others who have come into the conversation, but not necessarily through Verveke or Peugeot or Peterson. People like Tom Holland, who wrote Dominion, who looked at the West and said, this isn't arbitrary. This, we, we know what the, the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians were like. And then a man on a cross who is purported to have claimed to be God, but not, you know, a God like in Egypt or a God like a Roman emperor, but a, a Hebrew who claimed to be God, and we all know that that usually gets, people like that get stoned, died on a cross, and his followers claimed he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is now administrating human history. That man changed the world, and you can't understand Mannheim or Heidelberg or London or Westminster or Moscow or Washington or New... You can't understand any of this without him. Hmm. Louise Perry, who was studying feminism and gender studies and doing all of this and then working in a rape counseling crisis center, watching women try to keep young men from being inappropriate in their sexual advances, thinking if we lecture them on Marxist feminist theory, that will help the young men not get a little too aggressive with their girlfriends. And I thought, really? We used to just threaten them with hell. Marxist feminist theory, that will change their minds and keep them behaving? Color me skeptical. So from that position, she writes a book about the end of the sexual revolution. Now, and everybody suspects that, well, maybe this is some closet conservative Christian. That's what I thought Jordan Peterson was until I started listening to him. I thought... He's no evangelical. Louise Perry begins to write, and then if you talk to her, well, sometimes I sneak into church. And you look at someone like Mary Harrington, who, a reactionary feminist, for a while was going, was identifying as a man and going by the name of Sebastian, and lived in a, lived in a, lived in a feminist a feminist communal community and discovered, oh, they're all playing status games too. It, it, all because we were sort of one gender together didn't mean that some were more equal than others. And of course, went on her own transition, and if you listen to her carefully, she'll say, yeah, I was sitting with my daughter in church. And at least for many, not only in Europe, but also in America, that means that here's this one, there's this woman in her maybe late 30s or so with her little daughter sneaking into a building on a Sunday morning filled mostly with people in their 70s and 80s. And then if they look at her and are like, well, we never see people your age come in here. So something is happening. There are four things. So then when we're driving down here, I was thinking, we've been doing a lot of talking over the last few years. And one of the things that Constantine Kitchen, Kissin says to, to, um, to Chris Williamson is, at some point you have to stop talking and start doing. You need to do something. You can sort of live up here in your head and have all of these imaginations, but you actually have to act 
and the question is, what do you do? And so I was thinking about, well, we've, had, we've been having these conversations for years now. Where is this going and where are sort of the bleeding edges of this communal conversation that we're having now? And I, I sort of distilled it into four things and I had to create an acronym, an acronym so that I could remember it. And uh, I think I have it memorized, but um, I still have notes. And so it's, it's spec. And it's the spiritual, it's the practices, it's the emphases, and it's the culture. So the spiritual, if you look at my two conversations I had with Thomas, and if you listen to sort, sort of where Peugeot and Verveke and sometimes Peterson sort of land is, what do we mean by this word spiritual? Fortunate for us, the old understandings of the word haven't completely departed from us. And if you pay close attention to the word, you can understand that it's still around. You can look at John 3 and what Jesus said about, well, what is spirit? And I look outside the window right now, and I can't see the wind blow, but I see the leaves on the trees moving. You don't see the spirits, but you see what they're moving. And part of why I think Justin Brierley is, is writing this book about the, basically the end of new atheism, how it sort of came apart, is that this rational approach to the world that Sam Harris thought would, we would all agree on what the good is, and we would all pursue it with reason, and if we could organize the materiality of our life in such a way, then we would all be good and happy. And as Peterson tried to tell him how many times, have you ever read Dostoevsky? He debunked this years ago. That makes no sense. And what we see is that Spirits blow through our world, and we think, well, what is spirit? What do we mean by that word? How is it that suddenly Jordan Peterson pops up kvetching about pronouns, and people start thinking, I'm going to kiss boxes full of relics. What kind of a spirit is that? And what moves people? I, again, it's so, it's so stimulating to me to come to Europe. This is only the second time I've been to Europe, and just walking through, walking through the, the train station this morning and seeing the stores, and there's a Halloween display. The spirit of America is strong. And then last night I clicked on I. I you know, sorry, Grim Grizz, I turned on set in my hotel room. And because I was curious, well, what does German TV look like? And I turn it on and I see, boy, there's a lot of American TV with German dubbing. And I thought, huh, Hollywood has been moving spirit into the whole world and shaping the world in its image, sort of. And so trying to get a handle on how do we use this word spirit? What do we mean by spiritual? And so when you talk to, to Jonathan Peugeot and he says, of course Santa Claus is real. What do we mean by real? And John Verveke looking at, with the fancy Verveke words, collective cognition. We do sense-making through each other if when I walked into this room today, all of you were huddled around this table looking at something, I wouldn't just walk in the room and look at everything else. I would immediately focus on exactly what you were all looking at because I do my sense-making through you, and you do your sense-making through me. And we're actually not just thinking in our heads 
we're thinking between us and the we're getting beyond Descartes. We're not really saying that, well, there's a spiritual substance in the sense that there's atomic material in this table. No, but there's something going on between us that is spirit, and it is not only, it is molding and shaping and moving just like the wind moves the leaves on the trees. So we're going to continue to try to talk about that word. Again, last time I was here driving through the Dutch countryside, looking at all these steeples and driving into Germany, seeing the same thing. Um, last year, um, Matthias reminded me, I called it an alien technology because all of these churches weren't built because, oh, we have nothing better to do. We're just barely living on a subsistence level, but we're going to sacrifice enormously to build incredibly beautiful structures that are ornate. No, this was the psychotechnology of the spirit of Europe. And now we see these buildings and they're beautiful, but we want to keep them, but there's no longer all of the sacrificing, motivated, focused people that are pumping their economic resources into that community that finds expression in this magnificent artifice. So maybe store, who can we get to pay to keep it looking pretty on the corner? So what is happening? What has happened? So the spiritual. The second one is the practical. I hope Job doesn't mind me saying this, but the danger of becoming my friend is that I will talk about you sometimes. I try to be appropriate, so, um, but, so, but Job and I, his, his journey's been very public, and he and I have had a number of conversations online, and you can sort of track the evolution of spirit in Job when he first talks to me. He's like, I'm an atheist. Why am I talking to a minister? This makes no sense. And I'm an atheist. Why am I going to church? This makes no sense. I'm not an atheist anymore, and it's really bothering me. I, I really don't like it. I didn't want this disturbance in my life, but and now he's an elder in his Dutch Reformed church. But if you talk to Job and you see, well, what are you doing with your hand there, Job, with those beads? I'm praying the rosary. Wait, 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 wait. You're an elder in a Dutch Reformed church. Why are you praying the rosary? Well, because I needed to learn how to pray. And I thought, huh, how did I learn how to pray? Nobody sat me down and said, here's the Christian way to pray. How did I learn how to pray? I watched my father pray. I heard my mother pray. I watched them pray in church. And then for one meal, Job sat down and prayed a prayer and said, this was my grandfather's family prayer. And I thought, oh yeah. When I was a little boy, sitting down with my Frisian grandfather, he always prayed the same prayer before the meal. It's the prayer he got from his father. At some point, they translated it from Frisian into English, but the prayer was carried down. And so one of the things John Verveke looks at is an ecology of practices because the traditions have been broken in many cases. And so everybody is noticing that I need to do something. And of course, this whole question of doing was a was a feverish thing in the Protestant Reformation. If you look at the history of Luther and, and, um, and many of those around him, well, how exactly should we do the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper? Do we do this? How do we act? Jonathan Peugeot recently made a video that said, ritual, I'll rephrase it, ritual is a compression engine. You need to know how to do something. None of you, I didn't have to teach any of you how to sit in these chairs. I've told, what time do I quit? You're on 10.30? 
All right, I'll keep going. Um, when I was a missionary in the Dominican Republic, we had an office in Santo Domingo, the capital, and in that office, there was a bathroom, and in that bathroom, there was a toilet. And the poor office workers used to roll their eyes at these, in, in Spanish, those campesinos, who would come in because there were footprints on the toilet seat. And, of course, the people coming in from the countryside, well, they needed to relieve themselves, and so there's, there's, so they go into this room, and there's this, there's this thing. What are you supposed to do with this thing? So, well, I'll climb up on it, and I'll teeter on it, and they think, oh, these city people, they must have great balance. Oh, but when you were little, you were taught how to use the toilet. You know what a toilet is. So practices, so the question of spirituality, the question of practices, the third thing is the question of emphasis. Now, all of the traditions of the church have done all of the things I am going to list, but I think in some ways you can tell sort of the history of consciousness and spirituality by the emphases. If you look at the Orthodox, what do I hear from the ortho bros and the new converts to orthodoxy all the time. It's the liturgy. It's the liturgy. It's the liturgy. Oh, it's the liturgy. That's the thing. Okay. And I talk to the Roman Catholics, and what do I hear from them? It's the Mass. It's the Eucharist. It's the Eucharist. Oh, that's the thing. And then when I go to the Protestants, what do I hear? It's the teaching of the word. It's the teaching of the word. It's the teaching of the word. Oh, okay. And we've sort of run through those emphases sequentially. Now, again, everyone, the Orthodox have teaching. The Orthodox have Eucharist. The Roman Catholics have liturgy. The Roman Catholics have teaching. The Protestants have liturgy. The Protestants have Eucharist, Lord's Supper, communion, you know, fight about the words. They all have them all, but the emphasis has changed. And now, I wonder, all of those have also had fellowship. They've also had community. They all, they've all had koinonia. And I wonder, with estuary, if we're not sort of moving again into another movement where the emphasis, as I see in estuary, and my question we're starting, might as well start at little living stones. Nobody's going to be hurt. Church is probably almost dead anyway. Might as well run an experiment. Let's have all these people who, oh, I, don't believe in, I don't believe in that stuff. Well, why do you come to church on Sunday morning? Well, because we talk. Well, what do you talk about? Well, I'm not sure. We talk about different things. But what runs through all of that talk? Meaning, why did I weep when I walked into the Sistine Chapel? Why am I so angry with my mother? Why? And we just talk. And I wonder, will this be another thing? So the spiritual question, the question of practice, are we in now in another movement of emphasis? And the fourth thing, is, oh yes, culture. Spoke with my new friend from Croatia, and he says, in Croatia, Catholicism is everything. So the Croats don't get along with the people from Bosnia because they're Muslim, and they don't get along with the Serbs because they're Orthodox. But, but the people in Croatia, they go to church all the time, and they just, they do it, and they do it, and they do it, and they know everything what to do, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't sink into their head. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, you know who noticed that and turned over the world because of it? Martin Luther. It's kind of what he said. And I talked to my friend from Macedonia, and he says, 
everyone's nominally orthodox. And if a baby comes into the world or you have a feast, you go to the priest and the priest does his thing and it's built into the culture. But they don't go to church every week. And, and it doesn't hit their head. Oh, that's nominal. Oh, but nominal in Macedonia is not the same as nominal in Croatia. And then I talked to my friend from Venezuela and he says, Catholic is everywhere, but it's nominal. They don't go to church. It was so funny, I did a, an event once with some Hispanics and some Koreans, and the Hispanics said to the Koreans, yeah, we have hierarchy, we just don't submit. <laughs> and so nominalism in Venezuela is not like nominalism in Macedonia, is not like nominalism in Croatia, but then my friend from Croatia said, but here in Germany, the nominalism that gave the group one culture and one identity, that's not there. And so, and this is what's happening in America too, who are we? Are we a Christian nation? What does that mean? We don't know who we are because the relationship between religion and culture has been fractured. And can you actually construct a people out of all of these other people? And I was talking to Teddy last night, and I talked to Hezi and Jacob about Israel. And Israel is this tiny little microcosm of, to be Israeli, can you be Muslim and Israeli? Can you be Palestinian and Israeli? If you're Russian and go to Israel, but your grandfather was Jewish and not your mother, are you Jewish? And what about, what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be Israeli? And all of these things are in play right now, and it's a lot of these things that are bringing up wars. So spec, so the spiritual, the practice, the emphasis, and the culture. And I wonder now, after the seven years of, well, after the last seven years, people are kind of sneaking into church. They're kind of picking a religious tradition. But like last night, we're standing around a circle, and I'm thinking, my Frisian grandfather would not have understood this. Because you've got Roman Catholics coming to you and saying, thank you, you helped me, and now I'm Catholic. And my Frisian grandfather would have said, what are you doing? Aid and comfort to the enemy. And the Orthodox say, well, now I'm Orthodox, and thank you for making me Orthodox. And my Frisian grandfather would say, what are you doing? I don't even know any Orthodox. So here we are. This is the time. This is the place. These are the people. These are the relationships. And we're seven years in, and I don't think it's stopping. So... There's my take on it. Thank you.